0: Hello and welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that, that reach and impact all of us every single day. And we're hopefully going to give you some answers that you're looking for, even if you're not looking for it. We, we have answers because we got Dr. David Kipper with us and Anna Vicino, and I'm Peter Tilden, your host. How are you doing, Dr. Kipper?
1: I'm great, Peter. And how are you?
0: I'm feeling really good. I'm tired. I, I, I think I'm going through seasonal depression disorder. I really do. I've never had that before, but... No vitamin D for me. I don't go out in the sun, and I think it's hitting me. And Anna, how are you?
2: On that note, I'm doing great. I'm sorry about your seasonal affective disorder. That is kind of crazy to hear. It being in the SoCal area, that you could get that, but you can.
0: Right, David. Yeah, it happens. Right.
1: It happens everywhere at this time of year. Yes. And again, I'm I, I join Anna. I'm sorry to hear about that, Peter. I hope it doesn't affect your performance. In oh of course Oh, if it way,
2: does, we'll dock you. How about that? <laughs>
0: what I love it's the caring doctor going how does this impact us? Uh, we just want to make sure but good luck with good luck with your illness. <laughs> t- t- today we're going to be talking about a bunch of issues. Number one, this is a mind, kind of a mind blower, that a woman was diagnosed with cancer and cured from her cancer the same day. No chemo, no treatment after that's that's pretty rare and David will explain how that happened and what technique yeah, we they need use. to hear
2: about that we're also going to talk about and this is crazy to me but not in a good way how things like ibuprofen may actually make arthritis pain worse what
0: in our this just happened segment we're going to talk about a brand new experimental flu vaccine and we've got a caller in our hey what about me segment who wants to ask you a question david about long COVID and COVID brain so I I didn't realize the number, the percentage of people suffering from long COVID, Dave, is 30% is what I thought I heard. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this woman had lung cancer. From what I read, she had other cancers previous to this, but her lung cancer was diagnosed the same day that it was cured, correct?
1: Yes, Peter. And this actually is really a, a good opening for a, a deeper conversation that we'll have in three minutes, but there... This was a story about preventative care and about CAT scans, and she had lung cancer. So she had a CAT scan of her lung. It didn't really say in this story why she had the CAT scan of her lung because she wasn't symptomatic, but people often get this for other reasons. People that get an annual exam, people that are having surgical procedures and need a lung clearance, but you can diagnose a lung cancer on a CT scan much easier with a much better outcome than you can with a chest X-ray. So we all grew up having chest X-rays. If you first find a lung cancer on a chest X-ray, your chances of survival are about 10%. If you find that cancer first on a CT scan, your chances of survival are 90% and above. And the reason for that is the CT is much more sensitive and picks up these lesions, very small lesions. And at the same time, you find these cancers, you go in with a minimally invasive procedure and you pluck them out and you're in the hospital overnight. And then, then you're followed every six months or so for a few years. But this is not uncommon. And we've had these monitoring exams for 30 years or just not being used very often. The concern, of course, is people worry about the radiation exposure. And In the United States, we're much more sensitive to the amount of radiation that we receive and the dangers of that than any other country. And we're probably a little too strict. And on the other side of that equation is that these scanners now have reduced the amount of radiation. It's more limited radiation for these tests. But these tests are magnificent. And this just speaks to the screening issues of preventative issues that we've spoken of many times on this show.
0: Let me ask you a couple of questions about the way they did it because they they went out of their way to point out it was robotic that the the scope that they used initially was robotic the surgery was robotic my understanding with robotic surgery is that there's less of a recovery period it's more exa- it's more exacting and there's so there's less damage when they go in and, and come out um a couple of questions is a is what i just said true b do all doctors who do surgery now, are they up to date on robotics? So when you have a doctor as a surgeon, do you go, hey man, are you capable <laughs> of doing robotics? And does that even apply, David? Can you use robotics for every surgery, for liver, for kidney, for heart? Or are there some surgeries that are not, where well, you can't apply robotics?
1: We are now using robotics for everything. So you're right about that. And robotics is basically, an ex- it's an extension of a video game. The younger doctors are trained in robotic surgeries. The older doctors that did not have that training and learned one type of surgery have to go back and retrain and they often don't do that. So you're really looking at a younger demographic of surgeons. And the robotics is if you think of when you were a kid and you were using tracing paper, right? And you were tracing over an image. This is what robotics are like. So you have a surgeon that's sitting 10 feet away 15 feet away from the patient and the patient has all these little probes in the area where they're they're operating and the surgeon using a joystick is actually directing these probes and never actually touching the patient but to your point peter about less damage if you're using tracing paper you can get an exact image right you can get an exact line using the robotics, you, you can tell tissue planes. You can tell a, a blood vessel from a nerve from soft tissue. So it's very exacting.
0: All right. But here's my question there. You want a doctor's experience. So you want an older doctor, but then you want a doctor who can do robotics. So that's a younger doctor. How do you how do they double team? How do you, how do you get the advantage of that? Of you pick that?
1: the guy that does the robotics <laughs> because you're really? going okay, right. to get a better outcome. Uh, now, there are, there are surgeons that are quite competent and can do these surgeries. But a a good example of this was the prostate. So 30 years ago, we were doing prostatectomies. We were taking out the prostate gland. And the prostate gland is like a walnut. There's a shell around the gland, and the prostate tissue is inside that shell. So the trick there in taking out a prostate cancer was to remove the prostate tissue but to leave the shell because inside the shell are all the nerves and blood vessels that control sexual function. So one of the problems with these surgeries that were non-robotic was that men lost their sexual function. So a lot of these guys were going, Whoa. And then robotics came along and that became very popular. It's also interesting. If you look at mortality rates between robotic surgery and conventional surgeries, There's not much difference in mortality. There is a difference in recovery and surgical complications.
0: Wow. The amazing thing, the first time I heard a story of somebody doing robotic surgery from 3,000 miles away, as long as you're connected, it doesn't matter where the doctor is doing. The specialist couldn't get to the person and they did it from remote, remotely. Yeah, pretty nuts. Pretty cool.
1: There's another interesting part of this story. It mentions that this woman... I believe she had other cancers she had a couple lymphomas and she had a breast cancer so there there's a cluster of people out there that have a predisposition to a group of cancers it's breast prostate colon lung and pancreas and there's a biomarker for these this group of people it's called the ca2729 it's a blood test and if you test positive for that again here's a preventative trick. You then start looking at these organ systems and people that test positive for the CA 2729. This is another way to use preventative medicine in a way that allows us to screen and monitor these people.
2: Okay. So this I thought was fascinating because I feel like I don't know about the rest of you Americans, but I am definitely addicted to my ibuprofen. And so to find out that pain relievers like ibuprofen and naproxen may worsen arthritis inflammation, is it just arthritis inflammation? Is it all inflammation? Aren't these things anti-inflammatories? I'm confused, doc. Shed some light.
1: So the joint, all joints, the bones are covered by a tissue, a membrane called a synovium. And the synovium, when it becomes inflamed, it starts to break down and it it causes problems within the joint space itself. So we're looking specifically, this article was about the knee, osteoarthritis of the knee. And there are three bones that come together in the knee, the two on the lower part of the leg, tibia and fibula, and then there's a femur on top and you have a patella, a kneecap on top. So it's a complicated joint in there. There's a lot of synovium and wear and tear on the synovium ultimately leads to inflammatory changes and then osteoarthritis. It's pretty common. Remember, we're upright animals and we're walking all the time and we're engaged in physical activity. So the knee takes takes a lot of uh, trauma over the years. What we found in this study was that the anti-inflammatory drugs, they used ibuprofen, but remember there are other anti-inflammatories. There's Advil and Motrin, uh, Aleve. These are all anti inflammatories. And what they're actually doing is that they're calming down the inflammation to some degree, but they're not affecting the synovium. So the synovium continues to become degraded over time, even though you're taking these anti inflammatories. The anti inflammatories actually reduce pain, but they don't really uh, increase the uh, integrity of the synovium. So that was the gist of, of this study. How
0: do you know? It's arthritis, so you get wrist. I get wrist pain, or this guy has, somebody else has ankle pain or knee pain. When do you know? How do you identify arthritis from neural other other stuff that it could be? I mean, everybody thinks it's arthritis,
1: but it could be other other joint stuff. Correct. If you're moving a joint on any part of your body, your hands, your knees, your shoulders, your ankles, and it hurts it's arthritis. So if it hurts with movement, it's, it's arthritis. Ah. And if it's reproducible, that this happens over and over again. But the way, to answer your question, the way to really diagnose this is with some imaging studies. And the best imaging studies would be MRIs, which can really show that kind of tissue and show synovial changes. And that's how you actually diagnose it.
2: But is, is that rheumatoid arthritis or like regular, because isn't rheumatoid arthritis have to do with your immune system or no? Is it the same thing?
1: You're absolutely right. It is an autoimmune illness. And yes, your immune system attacks its own joints. And rheumatoid arthritis is a very specific form of arthritis. It affects certain joints, particularly in the hands, creates nodules in the, in the skin and around the bones. So... There are different forms of arthritis. You're absolutely right. Lupus is an autoimmune disease. It has arthritic changes. Psoriasis actually can create some arthritic changes in the lower back. So we see arthritis coming from autoimmune diseases and overuse. And it's not uncommon. And by the time people are in their 60s, most people have some form of arthritis.
0: And arthritis, before we move on, If you have arthritis pain, is it constant? Does it have to be constant or can it be come and go?
1: No, it depends. Again, there are different kinds of arthritis. It's arthritis pain for, uh, in general, it's usually worse in the morning when you wake up because your joints have stiffened and now you're trying to open them up. And again, it just depends on which joints and how active you are. The interesting part of this also is that when you take an anti-inflammatory and the pain goes away, You feel better and you start exercising more. There's more trauma to the joint. So the synovitis gets worse.
0: I got it. Because you're covering up up the pain. Yes. All right. And this just happened segment. There's an experimental flu vaccine. And I always want to know, what's it going to do? Is it going to be accurate? Because I I know you long enough that you sometimes say the flu vaccines miss the boat. They sometimes don't get it exactly right. But this flu vaccine confused me because this is a flu vaccine that prepares your body for the flu vaccine, right?
1: Yes. In in essence, it it covers all the different variant strains of flu. We have type A and type B flu, and they're two different kinds of flus. And every year there's a flu. We take that virus. We make guesses as to how it's going to mutate. Remember, there's A and B particles in this. And we make three guesses to see how it's going to mutate, and we make antibodies against that, and that's your flu vaccine.
0: So C- wait a minute. They're like at the Pfizer plant, there's a conference room. They're going, how? A, B, is, you want to guess? Billy, what are you thinking? <laughs> and then they do a vote on which, which virus, and then they go in on $8 billion, produce a billion doses, and they go, wow, we should have gone A.
1: Well, that's why they do three, but the reason we have a senior vaccine because seniors have a lower immune status than right. non-seniors we make a fourth guess so a senior vaccine is it encompasses a little bit more variety and that's that's what that is so there's okay. there's there's a little more protection for the seniors the flu vaccine itself because now we're used to what these COVID vaccines are like 95% effective. Flu vaccines have traditionally been at best 60% effective. The difference is, is that over all these years, when you're getting flu vaccines, and a lot of people don't get them, but when you're getting flu vaccines over, over years, you're developing antibodies against these different A strains and B strains. So by the time you're Peter's age, you're really covered pretty well. How dare you? So,
0: except for me, because I don't go out and have
1: no vitamin D, and I've but, got seasonal depressive disorder this this vaccine story was interesting because there are twenty they've identified twenty different viral strains for flu, and this vaccine, which is an mRNA vaccine, and we've learned that the mRNA is a way more uh, sensitive vaccine than what we traditionally use as these protein vaccines. And they're trying to create one that covers all 20 of these. So I think that shot is probably about 10 cc's worth of vaccine. I don't know. Yeah,
0: wow. How big is the syringe? Yeah. Yikes. And I should mention that I never knew this until I met David years ago. David gives a shot that you don't feel. And I said, How is that possible? And he said, Because you can buy smaller needles. Yeah. And not everybody uses the tiny needle that doesn't hurt. And I got to tell you, I this... learned that yeah.
2: from di- going to different Botox ladies, you want to go to the ones that use the smaller needles.
0: Really? They have.
2: And <laughs> I know. I, I didn't know that existed. And then I was like, oh, well, why doesn't everybody use the smaller, if possible, for the pain? Just saying. Not to, I'm not just saying for Botox. I'm saying for all. Everything, exactly. It's needles. like
0: Johnson Johnson yeah. B- ouchless band-aids. If they have the technology to make all band-aids ouchless, why don't they make them all ouchless? Do they want them to hurt sometimes? I mean, so with the needles. Do they go, yeah, let's put a batch out of the hurdy, the herdy ones?
1: Peter, you, you know me well enough. I, I'm the biggest baby you've ever met when it comes to a needle. And so I made this vow to my patients that we are going to have the smallest needles they create.
0: Unbelievable. And,
1: and they, you know, they they work. They're, there's no reason to have a bigger needle. The flu vaccines come pre-filled with a needle on them, most of them you can take that needle off and put a smaller needle on and bingo.
0: Hello. Hello. And by the way, the Botox, shouldn't the ad say small needle Botox? Shouldn't that be part of <laughs>
1: I really feel
2: like they should, because that's not something that I've ever heard before, but I I found that out through my own <laughs> trial and error. And I was like, Oh, what? I, when I go to this lady, my face would get bruises. And then when I go to this lady, it didn't hurt as much. And my face wouldn't get bruises. I thought maybe it was tied to, you know, time of the month or something like that, and then she's like, "No, no, I use the smaller needles. They don't bruise as easily." Yeah, months.
1: it's it's how much of a how much of a baby your doctor is. That's what it's tied to. Or
0: are the small all
2: doctors should be babies then? Or
0: are the small smaller needles more expe- more
1: expensive? They might be, Peter. They I actually you know. always yeah, wondered They might that.
0: be. Um, we have a caller, David, today in our well, "Hey, what about me?" segment. Um, who wants to talk about long COVID? And I think everybody has questions about long COVID because people are suffering from symptoms. I see that a lot of people are are getting long COVID, millions and millions of people. And it's debilitating. It's going to cost the economy trillions of dollars. So let's go to our caller. Caller. Go ahead. Hi, Dr. Kipper. My name is Mike. Uh, I have a question about long COVID, which I think I have. What are the long-term effects and does it affect the brain?
1: Mike, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, Long COVID is it's hard to know what the percentage is of people that have long COVID. The estimates are anywhere from 10 to 30%. I think it's hard to really know that because a lot of people have COVID and don't even know they had COVID and you can get long COVID from a mild infection. It doesn't have to be a horrible infection. And long COVID is defined as having symptoms beyond three months of your infection. So long COVID can affect almost any organ system, but it's particularly Hazardous in the brain, and it affects the, the frontal cortex and it also affects the brain stem. And in the brain stem, the functions of the brainstem stem are to create these automatic uh, systems that keep us alive our breathing, our heart rate, the ways our intestines move, uh, how we sweat, and uh, temperature regulation. So when the brain stem is, is affected, one of the things that we commonly see in long COVID are night sweats, fatigue. Fatigue is the most common. Uh, And we have problems with cognition, which comes from the frontal cortex, the the other area that's been identified. There's some um, movement disorders that happen in the frontal cortex. There's uh, emotional things that get dysregulated. So people with long COVID have anxiety and depression, very common. And in the endocrine system, it can actually affect menstrual cycles, ovulation. So long COVID goes everywhere, but it's particularly noticeable in the brain.
0: So if I'm, I'm depressed or I've got all of a sudden I'm walking around and I've got cognitive issues, how would you know that it's even, that it jumps out at you, A, that it's long, there's long COVID? And on the other side, how do you treat somebody who's coming to you and saying, I have a brain issue, brain fog, I have this and that, and no. There's not 11 million other things related to other illnesses, and it's part of long COVID. Is is there a definitive test and treatment?
1: Well, the first clue is that someone had COVID and their systems persist. So you then have identified a demographic that has these symptoms. They're not going away. So those are people with long COVID. And then how you treat this is really the big million-dollar question. There's a couple trials that are going on now, that are giving people Paxlovid. this is the Pfizer antiviral drug, for 15 days. When someone gets an acute infection, we give it for five days. And what this drug does is that it stops the viral replication. So the sooner you take it in your illness, the less virus you're gonna have, and the less likely you're gonna have long COVID. The virus itself can live in your gastrointestinal tract. We know this. Is it active in there? We don't know, but we find this in fecal material. We can find this in other body fluids that it's sustained over time. Mm. What we're not sure about is how active that virus is, but it's in every organ system. And the brain fog is very typical. It's when people tell you that they get confused, that their memory is off, that they can't uh cognitively and in, in join into a conversation well those are people that have long COVID in the brain and, and that's
0: how does the impact an older person already has um alzheimer's or memory stuff is it impacted can you tell the difference or does family think oh wow their alzheimer's
1: has gotten worse makes it worse. And just as COVID itself makes every underlying condition worse. If you, if you have a history of migraine headaches and you have long COVID, you're going to have more migraine headaches. If you have a history of ulcerative colitis, you're going to have more colitis. And so on and so on, but wow. there is no good treatment now. It's supportive care primarily, and there are a lot of centers around the country that are studying this and trying to come up with an answer. But we really don't have one yet.
2: Is it going to be like Epstein Barr, one of those things that just kind of lives in your body, like it'll just hang out because we just don't know how to really very
1: smart. And I think flush it out. I think that is what this is. I think this virus is going to sustain itself and. With Epstein-Barr, what happens, it hides out, right? And then you get right. your immune system stressed, either from emotional stress or a physical stress, and the virus pops back out. With long COVID, what we've seen is that it, it doesn't go away. There's no time out. So that's a difference between Epstein-Barr and long COVID. But we're, we just don't know. We haven't seen this long enough. But it does exist in the beginning when we were seeing this. And we couldn't figure out why some people were holding on to these symptoms forever. And we suspected that it was long COVID. People were trying everything to eliminate their night sweats and the fatigue and the coughing and all these things that persisted. We had no therapies. And because we had no therapies, people that had a low-grade depression went nuts. And people that were anxious, that anxiety got worse. It's, it's estimated that people with COVID, period, have a level of depression that they didn't have before they had COVID, some low level of brain inflammation.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kipper. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Producer Laurie. And thank you for listening. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, join us next time here on Bedside Matters.
2: If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can go to our website, bedsidematters.org, and leave a voicemail or submit a question. The information on Bedside Matters and the resources available for download are not intended as and should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.